that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Janice. On today's program, we're looking at Michelle Yeoh's historic Oscar win and what it means for Asian cinema. The Malaysian actress took home Oscar's Best Actress Trophy on Monday for her performance in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, making her the first Asian to win in a leading acting category. She started her acting career in Hong Kong in the 80s before breaking through to Hollywood in the 1997 James Bond movie Tomorrow Never Dies. Now that she has taken home the top prize, what does it mean for Asian actors and Asian cinema? After 9.45, we'll look at eye drops that researchers say appears to be effective in preventing children from developing short-sightedness. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Now to kick off our discussion this morning, we have in our Kowloon Tong studio, Jason Koh, an assistant professor at Baptist University's Film Academy. And on the line, we have Elizabeth Kerr, a movie reviewer, and Timmy Chen, a member of the Hong Kong Film Critics Society. Good morning, Professor Ko. Good morning. And good morning, Ms. Kerr and uh, Professor Chen. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. So, um, first of all, Professor Ko, uh, what was your initial reaction to Michelle Yeoh's uh, winning the, the Oscar? I thought it was about time. You know, uh, Michelle Yeoh is one of the world's biggest stars, definitely one of the biggest, if not the biggest, in all of Asia, and has been dominating headlines uh, and demonstrating her acting prowess for the last three decades. Not only can she do dramatic work, she can also do stunt work and action, you know, um, and she brings a gravitas to her role that means that she has to be taken seriously. And it's about time that the Academy recognized her. All right. And Miss Kerr, what do you think? I mean, did her win come as uh, much of a surprise? I mean, even before the Oscars, uh, the movie already uh, um, grabbed many awards at the, uh, for example, at the uh, Screen Actors Guild and uh, Producers Guild of America. Um, I don't think it was much of a surprise to anyone. And I would agree that it's about time, but she probably should have won for a few things. Well, of course, it's about time, which is why you say that, because she should have won already for something else. Was it a surprise? Not really considering the other Guild Awards and all that kind of thing. Momentum was on her side. Uh, in fairness, it, 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 Best Actress is probably one of the tighter races this year. Kate Blanchett turned in a stellar performance. Tar was an incredible performance. And if, you know, in some circumstances, pound for pound, it might be better than everything everywhere. Um, it depends very much though on how much you like the film and everything everywhere is a lot easier to like it's a lot more fun it's a lot more um re- recognizably emotional and and michelle Yeoh's performance was a lot more e- empathetic i think what, and a little more connective which of our other films do you think would have been stronger for her as a oscar winner oh, crouching tiger in the runaway she was excellent in crouching tiger um that's the one i think that really i mean she was fairly fairly well known she was very well known in this part of the world long before crouching tiger for all my personal favorite is you know the the heroic trio but i don't think that's really uh, oscar material um 
there was plenty of stuff that she should have uh, won for before Crouching Tiger as well. Littler things. Um, Crouching Tiger is the one that I think made her uh, a much bigger international star. Right, but I thought in terms of character development <laughs> and presenting across... Uh, I actually rather liked uh, Crazy Rich Asians. <laughs> <laughs> or linguistic accuracy as well. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean... Uh, yeah, I, that's... that's that's another movie like Tar, which uh, her performance depends very much on how uh, how much you like her performance depends on how much you like that film. I don't like that film. Right. I, a so, lot of, a lot of you know, even stuff. even with my even with my girl Michelle in it, I'm going, nah. Well, this is a rom com, and I just that's the personal bias. I just don't like rom coms. I don't care where they're from and who's in them and what it's about and what the linguistics are like. I don't think it looked like Singapore. I think it looked like a um, a tourism board ad, but this is another argument altogether, so I'm going to stop now. <laughs> right. And uh, Professor Chen, let's go to you. Um, of course, uh, yeah. we know we know uh, Michelle Yeoh is a, is a Malaysian actress, uh, but she has a very, very strong ties with Hong Kong as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I think uh, she's uh, deeply connected with uh, the development of Hong Kong action cinema. Yeah, so uh, certainly. Um, but at the same time, I would like to point out that um, uh, her success uh, it's also built upon the uh, shoulders of uh, her predecessors, uh, such as uh, Anna Mae Wong or uh, Nancy Guan. Yeah, so I think, uh, of course, uh, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with uh, the other two commentators that um, her success uh, came as no surprise, and uh, it's, it's time that uh, she got uh, award. Actually, uh, perhaps the uh, Oscar is the almost the last uh, award. Um, I, I mean that uh, uh, we already uh, knew that um, uh, this film uh, would get a lot of awards based on um, the film's uh, previous uh, successes. Yeah. Right. For, for those of us uh, who, who might not be uh, as familiar with uh, Michelle Yeoh's uh, links to Hong Kong, can, can you uh, give us a, a um, like a, an explanation? What is her? What are her links? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because uh, 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 basically, uh, her, um, uh, she was a very famous uh, um, uh, uh, fighting star uh, in Hong Kong cinema. And then, uh, 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 I, I, I think, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, to be honest, I, I'm uh, not that familiar with her uh, body of works. But uh, uh, for example, like um, uh, the current exhibition at the Hong Kong Film Archive also features um, her uh, performance uh, in uh, Hong Kong's uh, DB studio uh, in the 1980s. Yeah. It was nice that she paid tribute specifically to Hong Kong in her acceptance speech, I thought. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, she uh, mentioned her extended family in uh, Hong Kong. So I think, uh, I, I, I think, so it's um, her success um, serves as an ex uh, inspiration not only for Asian and Asian American um, filmmakers, um, film professionals, um, actors and actresses, but also uh, for uh, Hong Kong cinema. Right. Jason, could our cinema scene make a comeback? Ah, good question. And that's the question everyone's asking, really. You know, even if you look at Variety or, you know, these uh, mainstream Hollywood presses, you know, they're looking at what is the possibility for a comeback for Hong Kong cinema specifically? Right. When you I when I was here in the 70s, I was always watching Chinese films, right. actually many of them in Mandarin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that yeah. was the era. 
but there yeah. were some good ones with Bruce Lee, of course, and all that. Of course. Yeah. And we were, we were going around the world. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and um, a big part of that is action, you know, and uh, Hong Kong has been the main innovator, I think, at least, in uh, martial arts stunt choreography. And it's had such a great influence on the rest of the world. And one of those innovations is to say that you can have a female stunt actress who can do her own stunts. And uh, there is a long tradition of great Asian American, actri American actresses, like Dr. Chen said, such as Nancy Kwan and Anna Mae Wong. But I think that Michelle Yeoh is also part of a tradition in Hong Kong cinema of female actresses who can do stunt work and who are feature stars in these martial arts choreography and uh, can handle the strenuous difficulties of looking beautiful while also flying through the air connected to wires. So, and that's something that's, uh, that Hong Kong brought to the world and really changed you know, the industry. And yeah, I, I can understand that you know, the gravitas necessary for someone like Kate Blanchett, who has won the award twice, right, to do a role where she is um, both uh, enamored with power, abusing her power, but also victim to her own power, right? But can she do that while also in heels and also <laughs> flying through the air? <laughs> and I think that that's something that Michelle Yeoh and other actresses like her, you know, cause she comes from a tradition of that, you know, like Bridget Lin, for example, um, who have done that in Hong Kong. And I think that that's something that's a neglected side when we think about what, it, what you deserve an Oscar for. And a lot of the great actors from early cinema, right, like Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin, they were known for their physical movement you know, and their ability to convey things with their bodies. And that's something that Asian actors and actresses can do. But that's something that's been neglected with the Oscars. And so that's another reason why I think that this might provide new possibilities of new ways of thinking about what acting and what a best actor is and what they can do. Not just a powerful performance of the drama of power, like it's a Greek tragedy, but, you know, to excite people with things you can do with your body. Right. And so far, we've focused. I would agree with that. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Miss uh, Miss Kerr. Oh, I was just. Uh, no, I was just um, thinking to myself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Here, here. There's a, a movement right now within the guilds in Hollywood to uh, kind of, I, and I would stump for them as well to to kind of advocate for a a stunt performance Oscar, based, uh, specific category for just stunt performances. Every a lot of other industries do it. Hollywood with its crazy stunts. Hello. Okay, you can't give Tom Cruise everything, but if they want to give Tom Cruise something, this might be his chance. Um, with the crazy stuff they do there on sheer scale, not I'm not talking about wider scale or just scale. Where is where is the stunt? Where is the award to recognize the stunt players who um, really do drive the industry? The biggest films of the year were not the ten, were only two of the ten among the biggest box office winners this year. So. Stunt performers is often what people want to see, and they're not getting any sort of recognition. Or just doing it recently on TV in The Mandalorian, they put the um, the stunt double Pedro Pascal's um, uh, stand-in and stunt double in the credits as part of the cast. So that's you know one tiny baby step going towards this. And I would agree. And I would agree that yeah, it's about time. Right, and uh, so far we've uh, focused a lot on uh, Michelle Yeoh, um, but uh, Professor Ko, what about the uh, Vietnamese-American uh, uh, actor Ki Huy Huan, who, who won an Oscar for his uh, supporting role in the movie? Um, he also has a very interesting story, right? Yeah, and a connection to Hong Kong cinema. Uh, apparently, uh -huh. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I read recently, uh, actually my wife told me because she loves reading this kind of stuff, is uh, he met his wife on a Wong Kar Wai set. Oh. Yeah. And his wife was, in, uh, Wong Kar Wai set them up, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so Ke Hui Kwan um, started off as a child actor. Um, he and his younger, actually, I think his older brother was, went to a casting call for uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And uh, I think Steven Spielberg or someone chose him instead because he was so electric, right? And, you know, he really, I don't know if you've seen it. It's, it's a pretty racist film. But when I was a kid, I loved it. Oh, Indians eating hearts, you don't Yeah, know. exactly, right? Yeah, and, um, but he's so electric in the film, you know? And he really is the sort of linchpin heart of that film. You know, and in the end, when uh, Indy Dr. Jones is in the in the throes of the cult, he says, "Dr. Jones, I love you." And then he turns around and he changes. So it's his sincere plea to Dr. Jones that changes his heart, right? Mm. And it's very similar to Everything Everywhere All at Once, right? If you've seen it, at the end, uh, Michelle Yeoh's character is kind of going crazy doing martial arts, and he says, "No, stop. Be kind to each other." And he's the he's the emotional heart that changes it, you know. So his story, I think, is definitely the most captivating. Um, he came to the U.S. as a refugee. He actually arrived on a boat, you know, and then it's the story of, you know, Asian actors and Asian American actors is he gets a role, you know, in these kind of stereotypes as, you know, short round. Um, and then suddenly there's no more roles for him because they just wanted him to be the cute Asian kid. And but he's, yeah. On that very point, there has been complaint for decades, for as long as I can remember, um, from female actors that once they get past a certain age, there's no more roles for them. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I don't know where the age was 30 at one point. Yeah. Um, and what she's saying, what she was saying in her ex acceptance speech was, wow, you know, when, you, when yeah. you're 50, you're not finished. Yeah, yeah. She says, ladies, don't let anyone tell you you ever passed your prime. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah, yeah. And, and just going back to what you were saying, uh, Professor Ko, about uh, how uh, Ki Hui Huan, he, he was actually in, you know, some of the biggest blockbusters in the 1980s, like yeah. you said, uh, Indiana Jones. Um, and then later on, you were saying that he, he couldn't find enough uh, yeah. acting job after that yeah. for decades, actually, yeah, according yeah. to what he said. Um, does that show that uh, how, uh, Hollywood was uh, not uh, a hospitable place for Asians back then? Well, I don't think we just need to look at his story to know that. <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood has not been a hospitable place to anyone except the white male. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's been documented empirically, statistically, you know, and we are seeing changes and uh, part of this is also demographic changes to the academy itself, a lot of it which has been helmed by Ang Lee, actually, um, to the voting members of the academy. And so we are seeing changes, um, and it has been historically racist and sexist and a place where major powerful producers are able to take advantage of people sexually, which we know about. So, you know, uh, it's no surprise, I think, that he had trouble. But he did go to Hong Kong. And he did work in stunt work in Hong Kong for a long time. Yeah. So, Ms. Kerr, what do you think has changed over these uh, past few years? Um, <laughs> not an awful lot. Mm. Um, <laughs> not, uh, not enough. <laughs> the, 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 um, the, pro the problem with... Oh, God, the problem with Hollywood is... is the problems, the structural problems are... are you know, they are countless. There's so many. And when Michelle Yeoh said, you know, kids who look like me, she, yeah, she was speaking for herself, but she was also speaking for every single person who, I mean, everybody has movies, and it's, it's not a mad, not everyone, 
sorry, a lot of a lot of us love movies. It's not a matter of changing the Academy votership. Uh, you can do what you want with the membership. If the membership doesn't have anything to vote on that isn't some white guy, um, mm. you know, with Chris Pratt going, oh, they don't make movies about guys like me. Really? Okay. When you don't have anything to vote for, um, it's really hard to award people who are not white guys with the you know industry's highest honor, as it is perceived. That starts in the boardroom, and that starts way above the membership um, position. So until people in the boardrooms start either changing their color, no, no pun intended, but until they start changing, or are hip enough to go, oh, look, this movie about um, a black lesbian and her gay Asian um, friend who decides to have a baby with a turkey baster and it's going to be a comedy. Until that happens, you're not going to get much in the way of, of more Michelle Yeohs. I mean, the last, the last woman who wasn't white to win an Oscar was Halle Berry, who handed it to her. And that was, what, 25 years ago? So until there are changes at the highest level for, at the, with the people who say, we're going to make this, we're not going to make that, we're going to make this, we're not going to make that, we're going to make this, but do, does the script have to be, you know, white woman 27, um, white man 32? Does it have to be that? Okay, can we colorblind, can we do colorblind casting? Until that happens and until there's more people saying that stories about Asian Americans, Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, um, uh, LGBTQ, on and on and on and on. Right. Until people start saying that, that those stories are valid, it's not. There's not going to be any. The stories would be valid, but are they marketable? If I were a mogul, which I'm not, um, I would really Scott talking. Oh, I can't make a movie called Kingdom of Heaven with Abdullah so and so. That's well. I think that one thing that's changed, and I think that that's really important, is that now we have the data, and we have the audiences. So you know. these streaming platforms, whether or not they're ruining Hollywood, they're definitely showing us that these, uh, whether it's a minority community, like you said, you know, that's oh, so far down that long tail, there's still a market for it, you know, and we've seen with Crazy Rich Asians, but with other films that, um, and television, definitely, and obviously social media, that mm-hmm. that diversity is actually making a lot of money. Now, I don't know if, if that's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, but the media moguls are paying attention, and the ones that don't are the ones who are losing their jobs. Well, the ones that, the ones that are paying attention and acting on it, there's, there's a double-edged sword to that, too, because, yes, um, when you market something properly, it does make money. Crazy Rich Asians made money, uh, you know, scored biggest on the weekend it opened its box office, was, it was the box office winner of the weekend it opened a couple of years back, and only 40% of the audience was actually Asian American, mm. which means the majority of the audience was not. So find the right vehicle, market it properly, let people know, look, here it is. You know, all those people who like rom-coms went to it, and they didn't necessarily, they weren't necessarily Asian, which proves, yes, it's marketable. Black Panther made over a billion dollars with a bunch of black people in it, and it wasn't just literally Africans and black Americans watching it. Everybody watched it because it was a Marvel product. Everybody wanted to see this. It was the next part. Market and you've got something. And it happens all the time. Brokeback Mountain made money, not because it was, not because Heath Ledger was cute, but because the two of them were in a strong romance. 
All right. And, and, uh, and yeah, the data is getting back. Yeah. All right, Professor Chan, what, what's your view on this? I mean, we, we talked about uh, crazy rich Asians and uh, not only crazy rich Asians, but uh, uh, a few years ago we had uh, Parasite, who won pe- uh, Best Picture at the Oscars. And uh, we also have um, uh, drama series like uh, Squid Game. I mean, do, do you think uh, Asian American cinema or Asian cinema is becoming more mainstream? Do you agree with that? Uh, yes, <clears throat> I certainly agree with that. And I think uh, uh, we can also pay attention to uh, A24, with, uh, the, the studio behind uh, uh, everything everywhere at once. Uh, I think uh, they, they previously um, uh, produced like, uh, films such as uh, Minari. So I think uh, that um, uh, they're... they're uh, Pay attention to uh, Asian content and Asian representation. Yeah. So the has have the streaming companies then been a net positive for the film industry? <laughs> <laughs> I think you ask. That's a, 60, that's a loaded question. <laughs> yeah. Yes and no. Yes I'm and looking no. at Jason Netflix, now. Netflix makes, is so desperate to get a library because they've lost their licenses to everybody mm. else who wants their own streaming service. They're so desperate to, to collect their own brand, branded library that they're just pumping money and pumping out content left, right, and center. Some of it is okay. Most of it is bland. The, their strength is in uh, buying if existing content from other parts of the world. And that's, um, I think Jason was saying it, that's, that's the thing that people are paying attention to. These little shows that nobody really would have heard of on Netflix uh, from Korea or from Japan or from Iceland or from Nigeria or something are, are making inroads on things like Netflix because if you give people a choice, chances are they might give it a try. And that's, and that's what the argument comes down to, opportunity. Give us a chance. You know, um, you know black filmmakers, Asian filmmakers in the States, um, gay filmmakers don't get the chance to fail two or three times. White guys, no problem. Ah, oh, you lost. Oh, you 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 closed the studio. Oh, shame. Okay, here's another hundred million dollars to try again. And I think that's uh, that's a net positive. All right, and so, Professor Ko, when we look at uh, um, Asian cinema and uh, Hollywood, I mean, how much of a crossover is there between the two? Ah. That's a great question. And I think that that's what Everything Everywhere All at Once really draws attention to. Because a lot of people are calling uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once the great film for Asian American representation. Now, a lot of people talk about Crazy Rich Asians. Like, well, that doesn't represent Asian Americans. That's Crazy Rich Asian people, you know, and obviously the diasporic elite. But a film like Everything Everywhere All at Once represents us, us Asian Americans. And I say that because I grew up in L.A. But Asian, but Everything, every wall at once, all of its references, which are really famous, right? It does all these genre references to martial arts films, to sci-fi, are references to Asian cinema, right? So how is it a film that's all about honoring and making mention and drawing attention to these conventions of Asian cinema supposed to be representative of Asian America, right? And so that's kind of part of the conundrum in Asian America in general is how do you, how do you make yourself an American while at the same time recognizing and remembering that your parents or your grandparents or even you yourself are from Asia. And that's always been a disconnect in Asian American cultural production. Uh, and so it's like, you know, when, when a film like, uh, let's say, Parasite wins, Asian American cultural critics aren't necessarily saying, yay, that's a win for us. 
but then everything ever all at once sort of says, well, it is a win for us because that's also part of us too. And that's part of the film's message as well. Wow. <laughs> I think that's why the film did so well yeah. full stop because that's what makes any film um, affecting or connective. Um, I'm, not, I'm not Asian and I loved everywhere all at once because uh, most women have a mother. Yeah. And there's that element that, that um, is going to appeal to me. Um, that and I really like Michelle Gibb. And I love rocks talking to each other yeah. by mental telepathy. Um, and that, that's the point of, of, I think, representation in general. It doesn't, the best representation is honest. All right, uh, Ms. Kerr, I'm afraid, I'm afraid we have to take a quick break for the news. Uh, let's uh, continue our discussion afterwards. Um, now, if you're tuning in and you want to ask our guests questions or just share your views on today's topics, remember you can leave a message on our Facebook page and backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And uh, here's a quick look at the weather. Sunny intervals with a top temperature of around 25 degrees. Winds moderate easterlies, and right now it's 21 degrees, relative humidity 77%. It's now 9.30 with a news summary. Here's Andrew Shirovsky. A transport consultant, Alok Jain, has told RTHK he believes Hong Kong's franchise bus companies have chosen arbitrary figures in their applications for fare hikes. Bus operators are asking for hikes of at least 8.5%. City Bus also wants to increase by half the fares on its airport buses. The United States has accused Russia of reckless behavior after alleging a Russian fighter jet forced an American surveillance drone to crash into the Black Sea. Washington has summoned the Russian ambassador for an explanation. If the U.S. account is confirmed, it would be the first direct contact between U.S. and Russian military assets since Russia's assault on Ukraine began. And U.S. President Joe Biden has signed a new executive order on gun control to try to reduce the number of mass shootings in the United States. It's designed to tighten background checks. Mr. Biden says he wants to close loopholes in the law. We'll have more on these and other stories at 10 o'clock. No way. This is a restaurant. No breastfeeding here. You always pump milk in working hours. No bonus for you this year. There are kids and adults in the mall. You can't breastfeed here. Why is breastfeeding like fighting a battle? The amended sex discrimination ordinance protects women against breastfeeding discrimination and harassment. For inquiries, call the Equal Opportunities Commission at 2511-8211. Don't discriminate against breastfeeding women. To assist vehicle owners in applying for HKE toll services, including applying for a vehicle tag, opening an account, and linking a payment means, the Transport Department has set up 34 consultation counters, with 25 at MTR stations and 9 at venues under the Home Affairs Department in the new territories. For details, please visit the HKE toll website or call 3853-7333. Drive smart with HKE toll. 
Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Mike Rouse and me, Janice Wong. Still with us in the studio is Jason Coe, an assistant professor at Baptist University's Film Academy. And on the line, we have Elizabeth Kerr, a movie reviewer, and Timmy Chen, a member of the Hong Kong Film Critics Society. And uh, before the news, we, we had quite an interesting discussion. Now, let me um, read a few um, comments from our listeners. Um, this one is from T.C. Jung. He says, uh, some random thoughts. One, it's interesting that as much as some Asians detest the West, they need the West's approval as a benchmark of success. Two, while it's uh, gracious for Michelle Yeoh to name Hong Kong as the start of her career, it's another thing for Kevin Young to claim credit for Hong Kong. Remember, her early career in Hong Kong was uh, during the colonial period. He may want to be careful about how her win somehow represents what's good about Hong Kong today. And uh, also, I have another message here from Henry. He says, for an Asian to win Oscar award is not easy. Indeed, hard as it is mainly a Western-centric event. My memory tells me only Chow Yun-fat and Jackie Chan reached the altitude as uh, Michelle Yeoh. Michelle definitely deserves the award, not only in this film and in many other films. I have read news that said she, as a kung fu star, had her body hurt by hard training in her filming career and training for film roles. And uh, that's from Henry. Um, so, Professor Ko, any any response to that? Um, do we really need a recognition from from the West, like Asian cinema, Asian movies? I don't know. Good question. I mean, we are speaking English, aren't we? <laughs> Um, I think that this is a perennial, perennially difficult question, you know, that has to do with, well, global hegemony, right? Who has control? Who has power? And uh, how are you going to get power? How are you going to get more audiences? You know, um, like it or not, uh, if Hollywood is the dominant cultural producer and its award ceremony is the one that people pay the most attention to, well, then if, if Asian cinema gets its plaudits there, then Asian cinema itself will grow. Now, that's a double-edged sword because you are giving the power to that group to share that power with you, but at the same time, you also need it. Now, that also has to do with our thinking about what, uh, Mike, I assume you want to talk about, is government funding, speaking about hegemony, right? Where are you going to get money from, right? What if we depend upon uh, our ability to make films or to make cultural productions you know, from the government, right? Then we are getting that support from the government, and we're relying on them, but also supporting it. But and you're that, surrendering control. Yeah, surrendering control, exactly. Artistic yeah. control. Yeah, but that is what it means to work in a creative marketplace, right? You're always trying to edge out and find your own niche. You're dealing with the resources that you're given, and then you work with it with what you can. And Hong Kong has, you know, people talk about, oh, is Hong Kong industry going to survive? Is Hong Kong cinema going to survive? Well, these are the people who have lived between empires, who have worked like your reader said, or your listener said, during a colonial era to a transition to a different era to a, who knows what era we're in now, um, who have survived and found new ways to market themselves and to adapt. And I think that that's, well, you know, it's, I think it would be naive to say, oh, you know, we shouldn't have to rely upon the power brokers to give us power in order to make the things that we want to make. But if the emphasis is, is on, we want to continue making what we want to make, well, then you got to do what you got to do. Miss Kara? That's uh, <laughs> what he said. That's um, that's a tricky that's a tricky subject. Um, 
relying on plenty. Hollywood is probably the only industry in the world, possibly except India, um, that doesn't rely on government funding for a large part of its of its cultural output. Uh, films are expensive. Uh, France, uh, the UK, Scotland, Canada, Australia—they all have funds that help fund the. I mean, one of uh, one of I think one of last night's Oscar winners was uh, partially funded by a Canadian fund, uh, Women Talking. So uh, control is relative, and I think um, it's the hardest. It's the hardest thing to reconcile with what you want to say because in in with government or with private industry um if i give you a check i expect you to not embarrass me and maybe do as i say <laughs> and, and that's that's the big hook and miss kerr if, if i can add on to what you said too you know even though the u.s the federal government doesn't give money to hollywood the industries there are plenty of cities throughout the United States yes. that give tax breaks to these major studios so that they do their filming, whether that's in Atlanta or these other you know, smaller places. And so that's a big part of the way that these industries work with governments, not necessarily the federal government, in order to get more funding. And of course, then they have to, you know, <laughs> you know like you said, if, if they cut a check, you got to listen, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, I yeah. haven't. Uh, yeah, that too. All right, I have an email here from Stephen, and uh, he, he wants to know what uh, all of you think about uh, what happened to him. He said, um, um, once when traveling to Mumbai, I was scouted to take part in a Bollywood movie where they wanted to recreate a bar in London. It seemed interesting, so I decided to give it a go. When I turned up, it turned out that all of the extras were white. We were talking to the director and staff and told them a bar in London would definitely have more mixed representation. They laughed and said, oh, that doesn't matter. This is what the audience wants to see. We thought that was uh, pretty unusual and it made me think back then about representation globally, not just in Hollywood. And uh, he just wants to know um, what you guys all think. That's uh, from Stephen. Professor Ko? <laughs> Stephen's experience sounds a lot like uh, Asian's experience in Hollywood. <laughs> so yeah. uh, some Asian person on the street says, you know, gets a pro this, I'm, I'm just making this up, but a Hollywood studio exec walks up to an Asian on the street and say, you'd be great in this film, right? And then he goes to the film and then what do you want you to do? I want you to do martial arts. I don't know martial arts. Well, just act like you do. I want you to use this accent. I don't have that accent. Well, just act like you do. So a lot of times representation is what people expect but well maybe that's changing and uh wow. yeah steven i'm sorry to hear about your experience but now you know how the rest of us feel <laughs> <laughs> see people far too often are hiring stereotypes well maybe stereotypes make money but maybe that's changing too all right. And uh, when we look at, uh, let's go back to uh, this uh, Oscar win by Michelle Yeoh. When we look at um, her, her Oscar, um, uh, Professor Chen? Yeah. Uh, like we mentioned earlier, she has uh, strong links to Hong Kong before. Um, what sort of, what real impact do you think uh, her achievement will have on Asian actors or Asian cinema or, or Hong Kong's uh, film industry? Will it have any impact? <clears throat> I, I think Michelle Young is very, uh, very much part of the uh, woman warrior tradition in Hong Kong cinema, and then uh, which can uh, be dated all, all the way back to the, the like the 1960s. Uh, King Hu's "Come Drink with Me" uh, featuring uh, Chen Pei Pei, and then also like uh, his uh, "Touch of uh, Zen" uh, in uh, 1971 featuring uh, Xu Feng, uh, who later became a, a, also a very 
uh, film producer、uh, that produced、uh, the Chen Kai Chen Kai Ge's Farewell My Concubine. So I think that、um, setting her, her、uh, success would、uh, encourages、um, more.、Um, I think Hong Kong actresses,、uh, and also、uh, Asian actresses and Asian American uh, uh, actresses. Uh, but I, I think、uh, I should also point out that the、uh, Hong, although, although he,、uh, she's、uh, very much、uh, rooted in、uh, Hong Kong cinema, but、uh, actually the Hong Kong、uh, Film Awards have have not、um, sort of recognized her achievements、uh, by giving her any any、uh, major awards. So I think that.、Um, Yeah, you also tells us、uh, the problems,、um, the structural problems、uh, in the film industry、uh, globally. Yeah. Right,、uh, and uh,、um, at the start of the our discussion, we we talk about we talked about、uh, whether、um, the local cinema scene could make a comeback.、Um, I have a message here from a, a listener, Henry. He says,、um, "For Hong Kong, since Shaw Brothers switched to TV, Hong Kong films, in my opinion, has gone on low end, focusing on laugh comedies." Kung Fu as filmgoers like to see action. Kung Fu got 90 minutes of laughter. Classic films done by Shaw Brothers in 1960s by stars such as Lin Dai were not more, but they are still magnets as the script, the stars, their performance, the songs, etc., are all excellent. And、uh, seniors, and he goes on to say, seniors and youngsters still appreciate these excellent films. And、uh, that's from Henry. So, um. Professor Chen, what do you think? I mean, can is it possible for for Hong Kong cinema to uh, uh, to to make a comeback? Yeah,、um, I, I certainly、uh, we, we can see like the uh, in, in uh, recently like the、uh, media has quoted、uh, the revival of Hong Kong cinema. But I think、uh, we should also、uh, remember that long ago, like the, uh, uh, before summer twenty twenty two, actually.、Uh, For years, we have been talking about the death of Hong Kong cinema. So I think that、uh, the I, I think、uh, these are two sides of the same coin: the、uh, revival,、mm. the comeback, and then also the death of、uh, Hong Kong cinema. So I think, uh, uh, yeah, I, I,、uh, there are still uh, uh, many uh, young filmmakers、uh, who's trying to uh, make uh, very interesting, uh, uh, socially con-、uh, engaged. Uh, Low-budget、uh, productions, and I think that, uh, uh, in these、uh, more small-scale、uh, attempts,、uh, that lies the、uh, possibilities of the、uh, comeback、mm. of、uh, Hong Kong cinema. Because I, I think of、uh, because of the pandemic challenges, uh,、mm. uh, the uh, formerly big-budget productions、uh, have proved not.、Uh, Very uh, efficient in uh, uh, box office. One One other feature of the of the Oscars this year, I thought was stood out to me, was another strong contender, or or quite on the Western Front,、uh, was actually made in German for the first、yeah. time, whereas the first two versions of the book. Uh, were made in film in English and distributed so, by Netflix, right? Yeah. And so the, yeah. my question, I guess, is: Is the world ready? For a Cantonese or Mandarin-speaking film in its own language, will it have a global audience? Well, Squid Game did, right?、Yep. So maybe that's the the、yep. next big avenue of change. 
that we can have more more languages as long as we have <laughs> subtitles. <laughs> well, if you look at the uh, recent trend, uh, the trend has been on telling really, really good stories uh, with uh, dramatic uh, scripts, uh, good acting, and um, about a sort of, uh, you could say, a uh, conscientious type of uh, mora morality tale. Um, and these films have done well, not just in Hong Kong, but also in mainland China. Um, so I, I, <laughs> I, I would, I don't think that Hong Kong cinema is going to go back to its sort of days of making these huge blockbuster hits that the whole world wants to see because if it's an action spectacle, but there is a strong enough indigenous support for good filmmaking that it can support an industry that can grow, you know, much similar to, uh, the advent of television. You had this uh, new wave of indie auteurs in Hollywood who were like, oh, we're just going to tell good stories. I'm just going to use this camera. And they became blockbuster filmmakers like Steven Spielberg or George Lucas. And so if we can cultivate these young directors and encourage them, who knows what could happen? Right. So, so what was the um, latest uh, or most recent uh, local movie you've watched that was uh, really good in your view? Was well, really everyone's good. talking about a guilty conscience, right? Dr. Chen, what do you think of a guilty conscience? Yeah, I, th I think uh, it's uh, a very well-made film, and then, uh, but, but I think it sort of like uh, represents uh, the uh, um, kind of the, the I, I think it's like the idealization of uh, uh, like a wish fulfillment film uh, mm. because like uh, Hong Kong people would like to seek kind of poetic justice in mm. uh, Hong Kong cinema. Yeah, so I, I, I think that's why. Uh, films such as Guilty uh, Conscience and uh, The Sparring Partner uh, have been uh, success, uh, like very popular among audiences. Yeah. Right. So, and uh, and uh, Professor Ko just uh, mentioned here, like uh, we we should uh, give more support to uh, uh, directors in Hong Kong. Uh, what's your view, uh, Professor Chen? What, what kind of support? Um, I, I think uh, the. Um, for example, like the government uh, uh, already has uh, funds such as uh, Create Hong Kong or like the uh, First Directors uh, Initiatives. Uh, but I think the um, support can be given to, uh, more support can be given to short films. Because I think that the uh, production of short films uh, really help uh, nurture uh, the, the future generation of uh, Hong Kong filmmakers. And then um, the yeah, so I, so I think that uh, the government should give more uh, support uh, to the production of uh, short films, uh, which can uh, train and nurture uh, like uh, film professionals and yeah, the the the, the um, and we can go to the movies too, yeah. and we can all go to the movies. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a big deal. Yeah, actually going to the cinema. Although everything I've gone to recently has been almost packed to the rafters. So, I mean, people want to see movies. All right, uh, Ms. Kerr, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us uh, on the program this morning. That's uh, Elizabeth Kerr, a movie reviewer. Many thanks also to Pro uh, Professor Jason Coe and uh, Assistant Professor at Baptist University's Film Academy and also Professor Timmy Chen, a member of the Hong Kong Film Critics Society. It's now 9.47 and it's time to move on to our next topic about eye drops that researchers say can prevent myopia. And we'll find out more right after this. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hi, I'm Michael Tin, Roundtable Legislator. 
I want to congratulate RTHK on its、uh, 95th birthday. And I've always been a fan of RTHK. I think over the years they've done a very good job balancing the needs of citizens to have transparency and factual use. So I congratulate them, and I believe that they will continue to do the same. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on two double three double eight two double six and have your say. Now, a five-year study carried out by the Chinese university has found that a type of low-concentration eye drop can prevent children from developing myopia or short-sightedness. To find out more, we're now joined on the line by Dr. Jason Yam, associate professor at the Chinese university's Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences. Good morning, Dr. Yam. Good morning.、Uh, good morning, Janet and Mike. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Now,、uh, before you tell us about your study, can you first give us an idea of、uh, what the eyesight situation is like among、uh, children in Hong Kong? Thank you for the question. This is a very important question. In fact, the eyesight in Hong Kong is not good、um, in children.、Uh, in Hong Kong, myopia prevalence in Hong Kong is one of the highest in the world. Uh, uh, so. Uh, Give you an idea for a children age of eight, already about forty percent, forty percent of the children are having myopia already. Wow,、uh, you, we're going to talk about your ointment in a minute. But what are the causes? We, we're putting something right that's gone wrong. What, why is it going wrong? Um, you know, because、uh, it is、uh, because of the、uh, environmental and also the genetic factor in, in particular in Asian city, the myopia is always higher than the、uh, Western countries. And in particular, something is happening is because of the COVID. And during the COVID, the two very important key factor or lifestyle has been reverted, has been changed. One is to decrease the outdoor time. Uh, in children, the children because of after the COVID or during the COVID pandemic, the restriction, the outdoor time for children has much decreased in Hong Kong, and also the screen time or reading time has been much de- increased、uh, during the COVID. And therefore,、uh, we can see that during the pandemic or even the post pandemic,、uh, the myopia is increasing. And in particular, during the pandemic period, our one of our reports has mentioned has. Revealed that the myopia incidence has increased to 2.5 fold compared to that before the pandemic. So the the trend is really increasing, and also it's very alarming. So the COVID has had a big impact, obviously, but that doesn't only apply here, does it? It's been a global. Yes. So that's the. Uh, uh, it's very important. So globally, we now understand the myopia boom is really getting increased and. So therefore, the problem, of course, Hong Kong. We are Hong, in Hong Kong. We are very concerned about our Hong Kong children, but globally, it's also a big uh, uh, problem in,、right. uh, in the world. Is there a difference between reading books and going on screens? The difference is not huge, but、uh, our main concern is about the reading.、Uh, that is the the reading time, the reading distance, and the light environment. So the the、uh, the in.、Uh, Appropriate or bad reading habit does make a concern on developing myopia in children. 
What do you think we're doing, or the environment in Hong Kong is particularly bad in any aspect? Um, Lighting? I, I, would not, uh, I would say that uh, we always encourage uh, parents to establish a good reading habit uh, for children. That is, every 30 minutes take a break and uh, have a enough lighting, uh, uh, not just uh, the room light, and also have a table lamp when reading, and also not too, too close. At least we have a one, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, 30 centimeter for the reading distance. So it is a very important good reading habit. And also, we also encourage the parents to have enough outdoor time for the children every day, two hours, even though it cannot be uh, do that, but every week try to accumulate to 14 hours per week. That can help to prevent the myopia development. But going forward, um, do you expect these situations to improve? I mean, especially now that kids are, are back at school and, uh, you know, we're free to go out and, and do, do lots of outdoor activities now. Yes, uh, we are hoping for that can improve a bit. But our recent data, which is under, uh, will be published also soon, that uh, we understand that even though after the restriction leap, uh, the the myopia prevalence hasn't returned to before the pandemic level. And also because the behavioral change hasn't returned to, uh, to before the pandemic level. Because once you establish the lifestyle, once you establish the habit, it's difficult for you to reverse. So we really need to educate the parents and also the children to establish a good lifestyle for their good eyesight. Right. What can you tell us about these eye drops? Um, uh, what we are doing is uh, we are using, uh, doing a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial uh, for using low concentration eye drops, uh, 0.05%, 0.01% and placebo group in about four, uh, 474 children, four to nine. And we do RCT, uh, randomized control trial, and then we review in two years time. We look into the, the rate of having myopia among all these groups. And then we, under, we found that in two years time, for the treatment group, 0.05%, low concentration atropine, uh, that's 28% of them become myopia uh, uh, after two years time. And for the placebo group, which is a group without any treatment effect, and 53% will become myopia. And mm -hmm. that tells us that using the eye drops over two years time in a group of children without myopia yet, and they can prevent the myopia onset by about 46% well, over two years time. That's significant so, um, numbers. Yes, uh, this is by far number, it is by far the most uh, effective way to prevent myopia onset uh, globally. Are, are these particular brand of eye drops or is it any eye drop? No, uh, it is uh, atopin is a generic name of right. a con uh, of um, uh, kind of uh, drug. That mm. is an uh, old drug, old drop. But, uh, but uh, we use a lower concentration. Atropine uh, has, uh, yeah. has, you mean, used to be used for controlling short-sightedness, right? No, uh, there's, number one, atropine is already a very old drug uh, for many specialties. Atropine drop is also an old drug that has been used in eye care already. But uh, atropine drop has been used in myopia control to prevent myopia progression already. 
So would you advocate children not suffering from myopia using these eye drops? Yes. Uh, uh, for uh, we, uh, number one, we are not saying we are not uh, advocating every children must have the eye drop to prevent myopia. It is not our main uh, the, uh, finding. But what we are doing is uh, we are uh, uh, providing the results so that the high risk group, high risk group. What does it mean high-risk group? Because uh, for those children, high-risk children, when they develop myopia, they progress very, very fast, and they develop high myopia in the future, they have a lot of sight-threatening complications. High-risk group defined by, number one, their parents are highly myopic. Because when both parents are highly myopic, the risk of having myopia is 12 times higher. Number two is they do not have a lot of hyperopia reserve. That is a short-sightedness reserve. Because when you, uh, sorry, far-sightedness. If you have a not enough far-sightedness, say for example, you have 25 degrees far-sightedness and you are still very young All right. age. Dr. Yam, I have a yes. caller. I have a caller who, who just wanted to ask you a question. He wants to know, or he or she wants to know, uh, atropine, does it make veins shrink? That's a question from sorry. a caller. Does uh, atropine yes. make uh, veins shrink? Um, the, but the atropine drops, uh, because it's eye drops, it doesn't uh, have significant or it don't have any systemic, uh, uh, obvious systemic side effect. Okay, if it's using eye drops, so we do not see a lot of uh, systemic concern. Although uh, when you use atropine drop for systemic, there's other systemic use. All right, and uh, are, are there any side effects? Can anyone use it? Now, um, number one, it only applies to children where they uh, still have a risk of developing myopia or having myopia and progressing. It doesn't apply to adults when our myopia is already set and that's not universal. All right. Uh, I'm afraid, Dr. Yam, we, we have to leave it here for now. Uh, we, we're out of time. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Dr. Jason Yam, Associate Professor at the Chinese University's Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today and, of course, to our guest presenter, Mike Rouse, and producer, Christine. I'll be back with another edition of Back Chat tomorrow with Andrew Work.